This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest, and that doesn't even begin to tell you how incredible a guest Andrew Block is. He is the founder of Frank, one of the UK's most respected and award-winning PR agencies who have clients only the likes of 20th Century Fox, Aldi, Burger King, Coca-Cola, and Deliveroo, to name a few. We talk about how he built Frank from the early days of 2000 to where they are now in 2001 with globally recognized brands and too many FE and CAN awards to mention. We talk about what factors go into making PR campaigns successful, the metrics he uses to measure the health and growth of his agency over the years, the process he uses for recruiting top talent into the business. This is just an absolute masterclass in business building, not agency building, business building. Andrew has such a detailed knowledge of the inner workings of how to build successful businesses that you feel that he could walk into any industry and any market and replicate the same sort of success, if not more. Did I also mention that he was Lord Sugar's PR advisor for over 20 years? And he reveals some really interesting things about Lord Sugar that I think many of you would be really surprised to hear. Uh, he's got a string of achievements just as long as his arm and none of the hubris or ego that generally goes along with great accomplishments. If you are interested in such things as, I just want to say business, then you will find this conversation to be absolutely fascinating. So without me keeping you in suspense any further, my conversation with Andrew Block. Andrew Block is a non-executive director, board advisor, and consultant to several leading agencies and brands. He founded Frank, one of the UK's most respected and award-winning consumer PR agencies. He's been the official spokesperson and PR advisor to Lord Sugar for over 20 years and has handled the PR for all of the apprentice winners and their companies since the show started in 2005. Andrew is listed in the PR Week Power Book, the definitive guide to the most influential people in PR, and is ranked as the most influential PR person on Twitter. In 2021, he was also named as one of the top 10 most influential people in PR in the world by BuzzSumo. I'm very much looking forward to the conversation. Andrew Block, welcome to Agency Dealmasters. Hello, Nathan. How are you? Super excited to have you on the show. It's an absolute pleasure. I don't even know where to begin because your background in history is fascinating. I mean, you've been a non-executive director, you're a board advisor, you're an agency performance and growth consultant, M&A advisor, talent manager, brand endorsement expert. When people ask you what you do for a job, what do you tell them? <laughs> Good question. I'm still figuring it out, actually. Yeah, when I was running an agency, it was quite easy. I just used to say I'm founder of a PR agency. Now, I think I, I, I'm just sort of going with the term PR experts. Right. But yeah, still working it out. <laughs> so you founded Frank in, uh, remind me when you founded Frank. September 2000, so coming up to 21 years ago. Amazing. September, you remember the month. I can remember the month, the time, the day. It's not something you forget. <laughs> It was that stressful. Um, so let's talk about that then in a bit more detail. So it became one of the UK's most respected and award-winning PR agencies. You've won clients like 20th Century Fox, Aldi, Burger King, Coca-Cola, just go down the list of some of the biggest brands in the world. Tell us the origin story of the agency 
and the most significant milestones along the way? Okay, so the origins are, I mean, I started my career in PR at an agency called Lynn Franks. Lynn Franks got acquired after a couple of years by a big global agency called Ketchum. The MD of Lynn Franks at the time sort of stepped back and went into the internet. It was part of the dot-com boom. And we carried on talking, got on very well. He said to me after sort of, I'd been at Ketchum for a couple of years, fancy setting up an agency. The short version of that story is eventually I said yes. Um, I did say no a few times. I just didn't feel like I was ready to do it, but I did. And that was the beginning. And then we grew the agency bit by bit. And up until sort of this time last year, roughly, I decided that I would like to step back and allow myself to be able to do other stuff that I couldn't do when I was running an agency. Mm. So I worked with the management team to transition and I moved into a non-exec director position. And that is the short version of a 21-year story. (laughs) Okay. Well, let's go into a bit more detail then. Maybe talk about some of the most significant milestones over that 20-year journey and give us an idea how the company grew, people, clients, revenue, locations over kind of 21 years, just a high level of view. Wow. So, I mean, look, there's so many significant moments when you run an agency. I think, Mm. you know, we started... I was managing director of nothing. We didn't have any clients or start off with anything. Our first couple of clients were friends and family, as is often the case. People who feel sorry for you want to support you. Yeah. Um, about three months in, we had the chance to pitch for the Amstrad business, which was Lord Sugar's business. Um, massive opportunity. We really sort of delivered the mother of all pitches and lost the pitch. Um, think we sort of overcomplicated it, tried a bit too hard. They wanted something pretty straightforward and we gave them something sort of way beyond what they needed. But we begged for them to change their mind and we sort of picked up the phone and sort of <laughs> right. said, look, we're sorry, we just wanted this so badly that we probably gave you a little bit more than you actually need, but we can do the basics. And they reversed their decision, gave us the business, and that was a pretty significant moment. That was sort of the start of my relationship with Lord Sugar. I mean, I didn't have too much to do with him at the beginning. I actually sort of almost actively went out of my way to avoid him, but got to meet him at events, product launches, and gradually built his trust and, you know, still working for him today, 20-odd years later. About a year into Frank, we had the chance to pitch for the Brill Cream account, which was a pretty major FMCG client at the time and we were pitching against some some of the best agencies in the business and we won that pitch and I think that was a pretty defining moment it was the moment when we said we can do this we can work for some of the best brands in the world and and actually sort of winning that I think opened the door to other clients hmm. we built the agency there was a you know we won awards like many agencies do and I never get too carried away with awards but um marketing magazine sort of used to award every year the PR agency of the year based on peer feedback and industry experts feedback it wasn't one that you could enter um, or apply for and we won that for the first time in 2005 then again in 2006 then again in 2010 that's always I think been the award that I've held dearest Um, in 2007 why why because it's one that 
you don't enter. It's it's what your peers say. It's what industry experts mm. say. It's what the clients are, are saying. So for me, that was important. It, it, I'm not taking away from awards you enter yourself, but I think when someone else names you as being the best agency that's out there for that year, sure, that's a fantastic accolade and a, and a great recommendation. So it's, it's always meant mm. a lot to me. Um, the other one was Can Lion, which I'd always wanted to win as a sort of creative person at heart. And we won that. Amazing. I can't remember the year for a campaign we did for Jurex, um, which was brilliant. So I think those are the awards I hold dearest. In 2007, we sold the agency to a company called Anero, big Australian media conglomerates. Big, big life-changing moment for me. Um, sort of set me up basically for everything that's come since. And we stayed with the agency as part of an earnout deal. When that came to an end four years later in 2011, 12, we had the chance, well, Essentially, they gave us a piece of the agency back um, and they did that to keep the founders of the agency with the agency. So all of a sudden, sort of was an owner of the agency again, um, having a sort of minority stake in the business. Fast forward to a couple of months ago, the management team of Frank did a management buyout and actually bought 100% of the agency back. So it's now fully independent agency, um, 100% owned by the management team, which has been a real kind of, I don't know, roundabout roller coaster, whatever you want to want to call it. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's yeah. there's other sort of moments. I mean, great campaigns, um, great people that have come through the agency. I think you know anyone that runs an agency will know that it's a it's a constantly fast moving journey with ups with downs. We we opened several offices. Um, one in Australia, one in New York, one in Manchester, one in Glasgow. Um, some of them went well, some of them not so well. Um, we built the agency to a size where, you know, we're one of the top performing consumer agencies out there. Um, so, yeah, no, it's been an incredible, incredible journey. And, and making the decision to step back was quite honestly the hardest thing I've ever had to do. But I've, I felt personally... Um, I always wanted to do it at a time when an agency, the agency was in a great place. And it was, it was, I wouldn't say it was running itself, but there's great people, great clients, great work. And it just felt like a good time to do it. But it was tough. It was something that took me probably two years to sort of get my head around doing it. Um, but I don't regret it. Mm. And, and obviously being still involved with the agency in a non-exec capacity, I've still got my foot in the door and, and involved, but just not with the day-to-day -day side of you know, having to worry about the campaigns and the staff and, and that side of things. And it's just given me the freedom to do other stuff and I guess open up a whole new life for myself professionally, really. Yeah, that other stuff we'll come to in a bit and, and talk more about in more detail. But what have you learned about what it takes to create a brand of an agency that's capable of attracting and winning global clients of the likes of which you won? I mean, how do you create a brand for an agency and a marketing strategy in order to win significant accounts and, and have significant milestones along the way? It's interesting. I never really realized the importance of creating an agency brand. I don't think till I step back from day to day side of, of things. Um, 
it was always something that we did. Frank has a very, very strong brand, but I, I never realized how important it was. I think it's fair to say no one is looking for another new PR agency. There's 5,000 or so agencies out there. And I always felt incredibly privileged and blessed, really, when the phone rang and it was a client that was considering working with us. I think you need to stand for something and you need to have a clear point of difference so that when a client is looking for an agency, they know what you stand for. And you can't be all things to all people. So Mm. for Frank, it was about creative consumer PR. When we set up Frank, we trademarked and registered the word talkability. And we believed that the best marketing was the buzz that takes over and essentially does your marketing for you as people engage with the brand and tell others and spread the word, whether that's sort of face-to-face or you know now probably more likely online on a social platform or digitally. And everything we did was centered around creating campaigns that would lead to this talkability. And we became known for that. And when a brand wanted to do that kind of campaign, that they would put us in their consideration set. I think also creating the brand in some ways came a lot out of the fear of having to make new business calls. And no one wants to be sending emails or picking up the phone and you know, touting around for new clients. So we were, I figured out pretty quickly that the stronger our brand was, the more front of mind we were with clients, the more new business calls that would come in. And you know, it was actually, I mean, and still to this day, we've never made a proactive new business call in our life. And that is an amazing position to be in, not only, you know, from the fact that I didn't want to be making those calls, but also from the fact that you can save a significant (laughs) amount of money by not having a new business development director, a new business department. Um, So, you know, once I'd sort of figured that out, I guess that gave us the momentum to continue to focus on our brand, continue to do our own marketing, create our own, hype make sure that people understood what we stood for and you know we tend to having frank above the door gave us a license to attract clients and frank was about being open honest no bs and we tended to attract like-minded clients and actually almost had this sort of natural deterrent to clients that didn't buy into our way of doing it our philosophy our style interesting and, and actually that saved us a lot of time because there was almost this sort of natural attraction where the right sort of clients that we knew we could do great work for and we knew we'd get on with were coming to us, almost kind of wanting to work with us before we'd even shown them what we could do, which was an amazing place to be. And to, I think especially in the consumer space, in PR, I mean, the same is true for, for other marketing disciplines, but it's really competitive and there's always a new hot agency emerging and coming onto the scene. So actually the toughest bit was staying hot, staying relevant for 21 years. You know, we were the sort of daddy of the bunch. Um, And again, you know, we figured out relatively quickly that in order to stay fresh, in order to be relevant, you had to do great work. And if as simple as it sounds, you know, if you do great work, everything follows from that. You know, you attract the best staff who want to come and work with you. The best staff do that best work. The clients want to work with you. So the thing that always kept me awake at night, made me restless and caused me anxiety was 
where's the next great campaign coming from? And a big part of the Frank brand was being known for consistently delivering great, big, impactful campaigns. And you can't, there's nothing worse than listening to an agency that's rolling out case studies from 10 years ago. You know, you have to be doing that day in, day out and keeping fresh. So what I'm hearing you saying is sort of clear positioning, almost almost you want to kind of alienate part of the market and then then you become really attractive to the part of the market that really wants what, what you guys are all about and, and what you're offering. That clear positioning sort of really helps you attract and win clients in the early days and I guess still does to this day. How, how have you kept and maintained that clear sense of focus and positioning over 21 years? I mean, so many things have changed and markets have changed. And, you know, as you said, competitors are coming in and out of the market all the time and clients want different things. Has that positioning stayed clear and consistent over that time? Has it changed much? Let me talk about that. This evolved. So, you know, the landscape from when I went into PR, from when Frank started is completely different you know you think back to 2000 you know early days of dot com no such thing as social media but whilst the technology is involved evolved sorry and, and the ways of delivering things have changed the principles are still the same so it's about adapting and modernizing and i'm a great believer you know you can't stand still as an agency if you stand still you go backwards and if you're not growing and doing interesting things and adapting and, and moving forward, then your staff won't want to work with you. You can't give them the same opportunities. So you always have to be growing and moving forward. But, you know, actually the principles of being frank and open and honest are now more applicable than they've ever been before. The principles of generating attention, creating buzz, not just creating noise for the sake of it, you know, again, more important than, than ever before. You know, the number of media channels, outlets, ways of delivering commercial messages is, is, is much simpler than it's ever been before. You know, there, there's more ways to reach people quicker. What have you learned over the years about what makes a great PR campaign successful? You know, you've worked with some of the most amazing consumer brands in the world over the last sort of 20 years. What makes great PR campaigns? I mean, ultimately, a great campaign is one that has a business impact. And I've never believed you should do PR for the sake of doing PR. So whenever you're coming up with a campaign, you always have to look at what you're trying to achieve from a business perspective. And putting it simply, if it doesn't achieve that business objective, it's not a success, no matter how much awareness it's driven, how much engagement it's driven. But ultimately, for me, a campaign is successful when it captures the mood of the nation and gets people talking and people have heard about it. And then it links back to what a brand is trying to achieve. And it might not always be a KPI that's linked to sales. It could be a change of perception. It could be an increase in awareness. It could be a number of things. But you have to be clear about what you're trying to achieve and you have to put in place a way to measure that so it, it's not subjective. And when you've completed a campaign, you can look back at the KPIs and demonstrate how you've effectively reached them. And what have you learned about, I mean, you talked about the landscape changing earlier. How have clients' expectations changed as to kind of what they want to get out of their campaigns um, and the impact that they want to have over the last 10, 20 years or so? What have you seen there? Yeah, I mean, 
I'm not sure clients have changed. You know, there, there will always be good clients and bad clients and great work needs great clients. Um, for me, a great client is someone who clearly understands what they want to achieve. As cliched as it sounds, it's a client that will work in partnership with an agency. I think, you know, Frank's style of doing things, my personal style of doing things is always to make people feel comfortably uncomfortable and push them to the limits of where you can take them. And that takes a certain type of client and that the trust needs to be there. You need to build that trust with a client. I think, you know, nowadays the, the marketing landscape is more confusing than it's ever been before. And, you know, where does PR start and stop where does advertising begin where does performance marketing come into it where does social media come into it um one of the things that annoys me a little bit about agencies is a lot of agencies say they can do everything and perhaps they can do everything but they're not necessarily best placed to do everything and for a client i think it's harder than ever for them to figure out who the best agency is to do a particular piece of of the work and the best agencies are the ones that are very honest about where their strengths are that aren't afraid to work in collaboration with other agencies who may be specialists in a particular area and i think trust is more important than ever you know my personal belief is is never ever to say you can do something that you're not confident of doing never to be afraid of recommending someone else for a different bit of the job but to focus on the bit that you're really really good at and ensuring that you over deliver and you never let a client down and I think you know the easiest way to build an agency is via organic growth and you do that by keeping clients happy by building their trust by doing good work and as a result of that they put their faith in you and they give you more and more work and that to me is a lot easier than winning new clients I mean you you have to do both but you know, win clients, build existing clients, don't lose clients. That's how you move forward. Sounds very simple. <laughs> if only it was so simple. It does. So. Right. As easy as that. Yeah. So what were the most important metrics that you tracked early on when growing Frank in the early years um, to, to just let you know that you're on the right track and that you're growing in the right way? And how have those metrics changed over the years? Were there sort of a handful of metrics that you always sort of obsessed about and focused on? Yeah, we, we did. We were very, very um, obsessed, I think is probably the right word, with the metrics. And we didn't really ha have, when we started, sort of any clear idea of where the agency would go. But we looked at the best performing PR agency in the business in our space at the time, which was an agency called Shine. And we, PR Week, published the top 150 agencies report annually. That would include details of fee income and such. And we would track ourselves against them. We could see what they'd achieved in year one, in year two, in year three. And after, I think it was three or four years, they started a few years before us. Um, after three or four years, we reached them, we overtook them. And then we sort of looked at the next agency up from them and we tracked them and we looked at their performance and then we sort of caught up with them and overtook them. Amazing. And that was maybe sort of seven years in. And then we found the next agency after that, the sort of next scale up. And I think we're still chasing them at the moment. But, um, that was always sort of how, how we did Who's it. Who's the next scale up? Um, 
Yeah, it's, you know, we'd, we'd set our ambitions high. We'd look at the best performing agencies that were out there and maybe it's a bit overly simplistic, but we would just think, well, if they can do it and someone's done it before, then it can be done again and we can do it and we let's try and do it, it can be done. quicker and faster and more efficiently. And so we'd do all of that. And then, of course, we'd, you know, ultimately you're looking at profit and you can have a, an agency that appears to be growing in terms of fee income, but... If, if your profitability isn't there, if your margins aren't there, then are you really successful? You know, that, that would be the thing that we'd really look at. And then, of course, you know, once we um, sold the agency, the reporting became slightly more formal and we'd have to report into a board and set annual targets. And, and But, you know, I, I, you know, even now when I'm working on my own with no one to report into, with no, to be honest, it doesn't matter what I make, what I don't make, I still have set my own personal targets and I believe you need to sort of visualize what that success looks like and work towards something in order to motivate yourself. And I think a lot of people that run agencies are naturally quite competitive by nature. And for me, it's sort of a form of competition. You, you want to benchmark yourself. You want to better your performance. Um, and even when, the money isn't the sort of driving motivation. It's still important to track it. Otherwise, you don't know where you are and you don't really have a true sense of if you're performing as well as you as you could perform. Mm. So you mentioned talent and uh, sort of agencies are essentially sort of people businesses earlier. When recruiting for Frank early on, and even today, actually, what have you learned about how to attract, identify, recruit the best people to come and work for the agency, you know, skills, backgrounds, behaviours. What have you learned about how to do that well? I'm not sure I have ever learnt. I sometimes <laughs> get it very right and sometimes get it very wrong. And I think, you know, firstly, going back to what we were talking about, creating a brand, when you create a brand that has a strong culture, you can attract the best candidates and that helps. Mm. And when you're doing great work, winning awards, there's a lot of buzz around you. The best people will want to work for you. Um, I've always recruited on gut feel. And sometimes you get that right. Sometimes you don't. I spend a lot of time on social media, particularly I think Twitter is a great place to spot talent in the marketplace and have made a few fantastic hires off the back of people that I just liked what they were doing on Twitter, like their tone of voice, their approach, the way they communicated um i've also got it wrong you know i'm a great believer that it shouldn't be about a round peg in a round hole sometimes you just find the right person and you create a role around them to fit their strengths mm. that can be hard sometimes you know I, my worst phrase in the world is a safe pair of hands i find that depressing and boring so i'd always go for <laughs> someone who is not a safe pair of hands um, Interest, yeah, uh, you, you know, you do want a loose cannon, person. not necessarily a loose cannon, but someone that you, you know, we, we ran Frank and still do run Frank like a meritocracy. So if you're young enough, you're old enough. We will, mm. someone shows the ability and the ambition, you give them that chance. You don't wait for someone to die, to retire, to leave. You know, you create the role, keep them moving, keep them progressing in, in their career. and that is, is quite a raw environment because if you're not performing and you're not moving as quickly as you'd like to, 
you know about it. You can't run a meritocracy by treating everyone the same, to treat some people, well, not necessarily better, but to give some people opportunities quicker. You know, by its very nature, it means others aren't progressing at the same pace. And you have to manage that. I mean, interestingly, since one of the um, companies I advise now is a company called Phoenix 51, and they're um, a recruitment um, assessment platform. And as I've got to know them, you know, they talk about a lot of things like unconscious bias, group decision making, and how their technology can essentially allows you to make better hires because it takes away a lot of the mistakes that we would sometimes make as an agency. But I still believe it's a balance and human beings. Yeah. Yeah. So now, you know, I think a platform like Phoenix is brilliant because it can help balance out some of your decisions. But I still feel like there is a place for gut decision making. And we are a people business. We're a personality driven industry. And, you know, I would never want to take away that feeling when you meet someone, you just think I've got to hire them. Mm. But sometimes you do need to balance that out. And I think to be truly impactful, creative, deliver the best work, you have to make sure you've got a diversity of thought within your organization. And, and you know, people, you know, diversity is obviously such a huge issue, and rightly so within the industry. But people tend to talk about it in terms of race, religion, sexuality. Sure. I sort of add a layer onto that. And, and for me, you know, one of the biggest detriments to creative thinking is everyone thinking the same way. And for example, sort of having a bit of a London mindset. And so by having a diversity of talent geographically on top of all those other factors, I think it helps your creative thinking. It helps you come up with campaigns that are more in tune with the nation and not too London centric or agency centric or whatever you want yeah. to call it. Soho centric. Soho centric. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Not everyone um, has beards, <laughs> tattoos and skinny jeans. So. <laughs> exactly. So last couple of questions on this before we talk about m and because I know that's an area of yours that you're spending a lot of time on recently. As you think about the next chapter in Frank's life and evolution, what do you think is kind of the most effective next chapter like what do you think that will be in frank's next evolution good question i mean i think becoming re-independent if you like <laughs> has given it i mean and it's only a couple of months into this stage but it feels fresh like a startup again like youthful energetic the, the, the life of any agency is about constantly adapting and evolving and moving with with the times and so there's no sort of i don't see like a pivot or a, anything kind of drastic but I do see like a renewed energy in terms of wanting to do the best campaigns wanting to have the best people wanting to do exciting things and I think having that independence again has I don't know when you sell an agency you, you sell it from a financial point of view but you don't necessarily sell it from an emotional point of view and it is a bit like sort of having a child and we never lost that feeling of independence, even though, you know, at various stages, you know, we were owned by other people. But I think now having it fully back within the management team just gives this sort of, I don't know, renewed focus, a feeling of vitality. And so, yeah, no, I'm very, very excited for, for the future of Frank. And it's in great hands. There's absolutely brilliant people there. 
So you talk about selling an agency. Let's talk a little bit about M&A, because I know that's where you're spending a lot of your time helping agencies at the moment. Um, you help agencies that are looking to sell. You also help agencies that are looking to to buy and acquire an agency. What makes an attractive agency proposition from a buyer's perspective? Sure. So, so I'm working as um, an advisor to an advisory M&A advisory company called PCB Partners. And their main specialism is in buy-side services. So what we do is we're retained by big management consultants or agency groups who are looking for specific assets to help them with their inorganic growth. Um, Where our role comes in, it's, I guess, you know, these people aren't necessarily looking for the agencies that have the for sale sign above the door. They're looking for off-market assets, people that sort of quite happily getting on with running the agency, not necessarily looking to sell. Um, I guess there's sort of two aspects. Number one is a lot of these companies are looking to fill strategic gaps in their portfolio. So they're very, very focused on, we need a performance marketing agency. We need, I don't know, someone who's an expert in Salesforce. We need someone who um, is leading the way in terms of artificial intelligence or voice recognition. So they're quite specific requirements. Sure. I think the second thing is, is culture and a cultural fit. And that's really where I come in. You know, I'm not really by any means an M&A expert, but I have sort of been there, seen it, done it, worn the T-shirt when it comes to selling an agency. And when you're selling an agency, you don't really want to talk to a banker in a suit with an Excel spreadsheet next to them. You want to speak to someone who can empathize with what they need to be looking for, what they should be looking for in a potential acquirer. And being able to talk from experience. It's their baby, as you say. It's their baby, exactly. And, you know, giving up your baby is a pretty difficult thing to do. And if you're going to do it, you want to make sure you're sort of giving it up to someone that's going to look after it and has your interests at heart. So mm. that's where I come in. And I think, you know, I've been doing this M&A role for the last year or so, and I'm getting more and more experienced in different types of agencies, different motivations, different buyer motivations. Um and it's helping to be that person to guide them through the process and, and help them and try and figure out, it, you know, it's got to work for both sides. It's, it's a marriage. So it can't just suit the acquirer. It's got to suit the bar as well. So it's trying to find that fit and figuring out what it is and helping to articulate the benefits to both sides, which aren't just financial. Mm. You know, there's, as an owner of a business, you have different motivations. Sure. Some people want to, sell cash in get out but for most it's about building their business it's about fast tracking their growth it's about opening up new client opportunities new sector opportunities the chance to cross sell the part to be part of a a bigger organization and it's trying to figure out what's important to the buyer as well as to the seller so i mean i love it i mean i think it's out of everything that i'm doing at the moment it's probably the bit that i enjoy most is just incredible to deal with founders of agencies that are making probably the most life-changing decision Mm. in their career to date. So it's brilliant to be right at the center of it and to make these deals happen. What do sellers of of agencies typically underestimate about the process and about, I don't know, how difficult it's going to be, challenging situations? What do they typically underestimate? Well, generally, 
you know, the seller of a business hasn't been through the, the process before. So they've got no clue really what to expect. I think it takes longer than you'd think generally. And obviously there's a lot of due diligence, paperwork and stuff you need to do to get in place. Probably the biggest thing that they underestimate is the distraction that it can cause to a business because you're trying to run your business and sell your business at the same time. You don't want to take your eye off the day-to-day running of, of what you're doing. It's actually a critical time to keep things going. Sure. Um, I know from a personal perspective, the thing I found hardest was not being able to talk to staff or clients and let them know what was going on. It's like this huge secret that you've got. And I never wanted to tempt fate by telling anyone about it. And it wasn't the right thing to do to tell anyone about it. But I was so relieved when it actually happened. And you can, you know, you do get distracted. We were very fortunate when we were selling Frank in that we had a fantastic CFO who just really dealt with so much of the process side of things that it allowed me sort of as the MD of the business to carry on running and keeping keeping things normal. And that was a big job in itself. It's, it's a big, big distraction. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's probably the bit people don't quite appreciate. Last question, Andrew, before we get into our favourite questions at the end of the interview that we ask all our guests. I mean... <laughs> There, there are a million more questions that I could ask you and we're going to have to get you back on the show because <laughs> I have, I've only scratched the surface. But but what have you learned about building a business and agency specifically that when you started, you were no good at at all? And how have you improved uh, over the years? What have been the biggest growth areas for you over the last sort of 20, 20 years or so? Um, I think probably the, the biggest thing I've learned is resilience and you you do have to be resilient to run an agency and you know I've always said you can't get too high on the highs too low on the lows you have to find a a balance um, and a consistency to how you approach the things that are thrown at you on pretty much a day-to-day basis and running an agency however much experience you've got never really gets any easier there's new challenges new opportunities new obstacles but it's the way that you deal with them that help you get get through them, if you, if you see what I mean. And so building up my resilience and becoming better, at, I think, my own time management. Mm. And to me, time management is the key to everything. If you can manage your time and sort of understand the difference between what's urgent, what's important, making sure you focus on the important things as well as the sort of stuff that gets thrown at you minute by minute, hour by hour. That's what makes you better at doing your job. And and running an agency is definitely a plate spinning job. And the the trick is to kind of keep all those plates spinning without, it's okay if they slow down a little bit. It's okay if they slightly wobble, but you never want one to fall off. So spinning plates, I think I've got a lot better at. Okay. Tell us about a time when you failed and what you learned from the experience. I mean, Frank was this amazing sort of story. For seven, eight, nine years, we had consistent growth. And I almost sort of took it for granted that you would just grow every year. And we hit a point, I mean, actually, it might have been even longer. It might have been 11 years, but where we just sort of started to plateau and we weren't growing and the work was good, but it wasn't 
yeah, I always have set really exacting standards, probably just I'm, I'm the harshest critic of the agency. So I, I felt it could be better. And that was a tough time. And it wasn't a disaster. Things weren't terrible. You know, it was still profitable, still, you know, there or thereabouts in the mix in terms of great agencies. But it was a time where I sort of, I mean, I guess the easiest way to describe it is dug deep and sort of got ourselves out of that plateau and started building again. So that was a tricky time, I think. It was the first time I realized that you don't just grow by magic and it's not a sort of automatic assumption. Um, we opened in New York. Mm. I can't remember the year. Just on that, did you recognize that you were plateauing? Like, where did that come from? Did that come from, like, was that an external influence on you to say, hey, we're, we're not doing as, as good as we can, you know, as, as, as well as we could be doing? But no, just looking at the numbers. Yeah. You know, just the numbers, you know, you look at the numbers and you see that it's flattened out and the curve is no longer going upwards. It's sort of straight line, a slight decline, I think, nothing sort of majorly significant. Um, And that's, you know, that tells the story. And then that forces you. And once you think about it, you think you have to be hard on yourself and say, look, there's probably a reason for this. We've lost a couple of great people. Work isn't quite as good. Mm as it was and you just dig deep and I think at that point we sort of refreshed our brand identity a bit we really really worked hard to make sure the campaigns were as good as they could possibly be and dug our way out of of that hole and the other thing I was going to just touch on was our American office in, in New York which I guess the short version of the story was we sat up in New York it was okay. It wasn't a complete failure. It was making money, but it was hard work. And I was flying across to America for sort of one week every month. But we realized it was having an impact on the UK, which was our bread and butter and the, the main office. And, you know, I, I personally found it very, very hard to do both well. And with all the effort that we we're putting into America, it was having an impact on the UK. And it sort of felt a little bit like the guy at the roulette table who keeps putting on chips and hoping for the numbers to come in. And, you know, we were, as I say, we weren't losing money. We we're making a little bit of money, but it just wasn't really going anywhere. And the UK was suffering and we decided to shut it down. And I think that was probably the first moment in my career. I really, I felt like a failure, but I got over it pretty quickly, to be honest. And it was definitely, definitely the right thing to do but Mm. it just you know no one sets up an office you know with the vision of shutting it down a couple of years later so it just found it tough but within a couple of months of doing it we saw the positive impact that it was having on the UK and just the overall picture and I kind of soon forgot it so but you know look there's always ups and downs I think agency life you know you win pitches you lose pitches you know no one is consistently successful if they tell you they are they are then they're lying to you so it's it's about as i say not getting too high on those highs and not getting too low on those lows and and going back to what i was saying about resilience just Mm. being resilient to it and sometimes you know the benefit of agency life is it's so fast paced you don't have time to sort of dwell on these things you know (laughs) we get to the end of the year and you sort of have a review of the ups and downs and what are the learnings but generally you kind of brush yourself down and get on to the next one, the next one and the next one. And the best way to yeah. overcome a defeat is to win. It's, you know, it's a bit like a football manager. You know, you've got to just make sure your team aren't losing every week and 
get the wins on the board. And somehow or other, when you're get winning, you sort of, yeah. yeah, don't get relegated. And, you know, it's similar, I think, to, to football in lots of aspects. You know, some teams, you know, they just win and win and win, even when they're not even playing at their best. And I think that's a lot to do with the psychology of when you walk out onto the pitch and you'll feel, you know, you kind of know you're going to win the game even before you've kicked the ball. And sometimes running an agency, it can feel like that. When we were flying and at our best, you know, you'd walk into a pitch, just not arrogant, but you knew that what you were presenting was so good that you were going to win it. And, mm. you know, on the flip side, sometimes you can walk in and you're just not feeling it and you've almost lost it before you have the chance to say next slide please you know it's just yeah the way it goes love it tell us about some of your early mentors who influenced your approach to pr to brand building to marketing yeah i think my dad was the person who i got my work ethic from and he wasn't in the marketing industry he was a salesman but a grafter and a hustler and a brilliant work ethic mm. and undoubtedly you know, I owe a lot of my success due to his attitude, the way he approached things, and still does, even in retirement, is the hardest working retired person I've ever met. And my mum was the one who sort of identified the fact that I would be good in a career in marketing, and she was the one that said, you know, try out PR. So ultimately, thank you, mum, because without yeah. her, I'm not sure I would have sort yeah. of ended up doing this. But she was never a pushy parent. And I, you know, I'm not an academic. I wasn't good at a lot of things. But she sort of recognized the bits that I was good at and how I could apply that to a career. Um, Graham Goodkind, who was the MD of Lynn Franks, the guy I founded Frank with, you know, has been by my side for pretty much all of my career, bar a couple of years gap. And we were always very complimentary. You know, I was good at the bits he wasn't good at and vice versa and you know I think having him by my side has been an amazing and you know now actually one of the toughest things when I'm stepping back with Frank was the fact that I wouldn't be sort of side by side with Graham and in terms of Frank but not in terms of my other stuff but that's been good as well for me I think it's I've quite enjoyed the experience of doing it on my own mm. and then you know I think one of the great things about agencies as you get to work with so many brilliant clients over the years and honestly there's too many to mention I mean I've learned a lot from Lord Sugar you couldn't really ask for a better business person to to learn from but I've learned a lot from him in terms of his communication style his efficacy right. but also the importance of enjoying what you do and you know I look up to him as someone who's 74 years old doesn't need to work for the money has all the sort of trappings of a successful billionaire the homes the yachts the you sure. know whatever and he manages to sort of enjoy all of that yeah. and still run a business and still be a great husband father grandfather and that ultimately you know wow. how you balance everything is really what success is all about i think so i've learned mm. definitely learned that mm. well i'm learning that from him i don't think i've mastered it to any yeah. degree as well as he has. And then brilliant clients along the way that have allowed us to do great campaigns and push the boundaries and trusted us. Um, that's, for me, what I love about agencies. You never have the chance to get bored. You're constantly working with different people who you can learn from. And it's not just people senior to you. I see young people come up into the industry with just a hunger and a desire and a passion and enthusiasm that 
just reinvigorates me all over again. And yeah. I, I think I annoy people when I say, you know, I never feel like I've done a day of work in my life because <laughs> I generally, I don't, you know, I just love what I do. And that's because of the people yeah. that I'm lucky enough to be surrounded by. Mm, great answer. Um, okay. Tell us about some of your favorite books. What do you, what, what books have been, instrumental in shaping the way that you think about PR and your own growth and the growth of the business? Right, here's where we hit the difficult questions. <laughs> um, I'm not a great reader, I've got to say. I mean, especially now, I find my attention span is so limited that I, when I do read, I'm reading blog posts or, you know, I listen to a lot of podcasts as well. Yeah. I think, I mean, a couple of books, I think Eat the Big Fish was has always been like, a really important book mm. to me, which was is all about challenger brand mentality and how, mm. you know, if you're a challenger brand and you're taking on the big fish, how do you approach it? How do you think differently? How do you think disruptively? And I read that book mm. every few years because I just think it's so good. Phenomenal. I mean, I, I read all the normal sort of marketing books that you would expect, Seth Godin and, you know, whoever um okay. I, I love stick it up your punter which was the story of the sun newspaper i think is a brilliant book again you know it was probably a good 10 years old now but i I've, you know when you're working in the media industry stick it up your punter yeah you know understanding the media industry and okay. how it works really good um and then i don't know i mean I, i'm a big reader of sort of autobiographies so the last one i read was Philip Green's autobiography, which I think which Oliver Shaw wrote, which is okay. which is an excellent book. Um, I think it's called Campaigns That Change the World, which Danny Rogers, the editor of PR Week, wrote another brilliant book. Um, but I tend to, I don't know why, I don't know if it's my attention span. Normally I sort of read the first few chapters and I feel like, okay, I got the gist of this. And then there's a lot of books that I started and haven't finished. <laughs> Yeah, me um, too. I'm not really sure what that says about me. Yeah. My buy to read ratio is terrible. It's really bad. Uh, what's the most interesting thing that people don't know about your background? Uh, if I told you that, then it would no longer be interesting. <laughs> there's, there's it would. It was just a few more people would know. Honestly, nothing particularly interesting, um, to be totally honest. I mean, I, I started my, my first ever job was selling timeshares. Um, Okay, And I think that was one of the best, I guess, I don't know, entries into a career in marketing that you could get. If you can sell a timeshare, you can sell anything. Um, I'm not sure yeah. that's particularly interesting, but um, that was sort of how I started out. And then when I was at university, I, um, together with some friends, we set up a sort of, we did student nights and we, I mean, it was, at the time it, it was really entrepreneurial looking back. But at the time, it was just sort of six or seven mates just having a laugh and trying to earn a few quid. And we yeah. did these student nights, and it was called the Sound Foundation. And we built them up bit by bit. Um, and eventually, sort of a couple of years into doing it, we were selling out the Hacienda. It was in Manchester. We were selling out the Hacienda every single week. And wow. you know, I was making more money then than I earned for my first sort of five, six years wow. in, in PR. And, and that, again, was sort of early lesson in being entrepreneurial we actually um one of my sort of proudest achievements which i never really found out about until 
recently was we broke Rampage. Um, so Rampage, who are now sort of run, you know, Radio One Extra and have the biggest stage at Carnival. Um, when we were running this oh. nightclub promotions, you know, we wanted to bring in DJs from all over the UK. And there was these guys that were in London called Rampage, who I really liked, and yeah. they were sort of hip hop DJs. So we persuaded them to come and DJ at our gigs. Yeah. And then a couple of years ago, I ran into Mike Anthony, who's one of the founders of Rampage. And he was like, I've been trying to find you for years to say thank you because by us building a presence in Manchester, that was what Radio One spotted in us, that we were one of the only hip-hop DJs that had a following outside of London. And they signed us for Radio One Extra to become founding DJs of the station. And that was all down to you. And so that was quite cool. Amazing. Last couple of questions and I'll let you go. I know we're, we're overrunning. Um, what advice would you give to a young person, a millennial who comes to you and says they want to start their career in the PR industry or start a PR agency? What advice do you give her? Um, I think, well, look, let's start with getting into the industry. I think it's tough. You know, getting your foot on the ladder is not easy at all. So you've got to do whatever you can to give yourself the edge amongst thousands of other people that have very little experience as well. So do work experience, use social media to follow industry leaders, industry media, start to engage with them and interact with them. I think it's a great way to get yourself noticed. If you're the sort of person that feels like you could have a blog or a YouTube channel or anything that's going to set you apart, try and do that. Podcast. Podcast. Good idea. Podcast. You know, and there's, there are people that I've seen built brilliant careers off the back of podcasts and, you know, managed to get great jobs yeah. because they've got noticed by senior people. It's so much more interesting than just sending your CV in. And if you are going to send in a CV, don't just send in a traditional CV. Do something a bit more interesting, a bit more personal. Do your research on what companies you want to work for and adapt your approach to that organization. In terms of setting up a PR agency, I guess the best piece of advice I can give is you will never feel ready. So just do it. There's always an excuse why you shouldn't do something, why it's not a good time to do something that you don't have enough experience, that you've just bought a house or that you're just getting married or whatever it might be. You will never feel ready. So just make the jump and do it. From my perspective, I always thought through what's the worst thing that could happen, which might feel like quite a negative way of approaching things. But that was what enabled me to think, okay, worst case, this thing won't work and I'll go back to my employer cap in hand and ask for my job back or I'll find something else. But that was really the worst thing that was going to happen and that didn't seem like so bad. Mm. So that was eventually what convinced me to say yes and set up my agency. But I would encourage anyone to do it. But know why you're doing it, know how you're going to be different, have a plan and then just go for it. Great answer. Absolutely love it. Okay, and my final question, Andrew, what is it you know about growing agencies and specifically PR agencies today that you wish you knew right at the beginning of your career 20 years ago? You saved the hardest question to last. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, I went into it pretty blind, not knowing what to expect. I think when you set up an agency, you don't necessarily have a vision of where it's going to go. You just want to get to the end of the first year and then you get to the end of the first year and you want to get to the end of the second year. And then once you've done that, you're sort of up and running and the stabilizers are off. But 
I don't really know. I mean, I don't, haven't, don't regret for one second setting up an agency. I don't regret not doing it sooner because I think I had the right amount of time. I've obviously learned a huge amount over the years of doing it, but I'm not sure there's one thing now that I would have told myself right at the beginning. I knew it would be hard. I knew it would be tough. I knew we'd be lucky to break through and succeed. And, and obviously sort of 20 odd years later, I know all that to be true. So I could maybe say to you to have started it up with a bit more confidence, but even that, I think I did in my heart know it would be okay and it would be good. I just didn't know how good. Um, so it's, re- it's a really hard, hard question. Um, I think I knew all the answers 20 years ago. I just didn't know that I knew the answers. Mm. So maybe confidence, a bit more, mm. bit more confidence in my own ability and the ability of those that you know, I was surrounding myself with. Absolutely love it. I've really enjoyed speaking to you, Andrew. Very honest, very genuine. There's so much to learn for me, who's just starting out on this agency journey and so many other agencies listening to this, I think will take a lot from the conversation and your experience over the last 20 years. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. No, I've enjoyed it too. Thank you for having me. We have been speaking with Andrew Block. He's currently the founder at Andrew Block and Associates. If you enjoyed this conversation, then head over to Apple Podcasts where you can listen to over 125 such conversations we've had with world-class leaders in sales, marketing, and PR. Thank you for all your feedback and suggestions on LinkedIn and email. Write to me at Nathan at agencydealmasters.com. Please follow me on Twitter at Nathan Annie Barber. We would be unable to do this show without our very own Dealmasters. Anita Beckoldi is our production assistant. Sarah Spence is our booker slash project manager. Tyler Baller is our editor. Christoph Boaszczyk is our executive producer. I'm Nathan Alibaba. You've been listening to Agency Dealmasters. Hey everyone, it's Nathan here. I just want to tell you about the new Agency Dealmasters newsletter, which is packed with insights and content that you may have missed from our previous conversations with our amazing guests. We highlight key themes and ideas from each week's episode, as well as the key takeaways from our team. It's full of book recommendations, ways to run a more profitable agency, ideas to recruit and retain the best people, new business ideas, and much, much more from the key people who really make our industry what it is. It's all exclusive to our email list. You're not going to find that content anywhere else. So subscribe and read the latest issue by clicking on that link in the show notes, or you can go to agencydealmasters.com slash news.